0: Hello and welcome again to the Rare Possessions Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Belletti, and with me is Jared. I'm getting my master's degree ready. Thank you. <laughs> How's that
1: going, by the way? It's not, not horrible. Um, <laughs> not it's, horrible. It's going well. Uh, just a part-time while I'm still working full-time at Buckeman Central. So awesome. It'll be about three years Excellent. be completed. And what's that going to be in again? Uh, currently, library science with emphasis in archival work. Which and- is... What you do, which is what I do. It's wonderful.
0: All right. Well, we've got a an interesting article today to go over with you, uh, our wonderful and loyal audience. This uh, comes from George Reynolds, uh, author of this article, and the title of the article is "Internal Evidences of the Book of Mormon, Showing the Absurdity of the Spaulding Story." Can I say that in 1882, the members
1: of the church were really bold with what they they wrote? They did not mince words. I think it's it's inherent of the entire time. They did not uh, mince words. Yeah, political correctness they or with each other. any of that stuff just didn't seem to be uh, a there, thing the same there's way. There's a fascinating article. This is going completely off topic. Fascinating book uh, called Field of Blood by Joanne Freeman about violence in political discourse uh, during the, during, the, during the 19th century. It's in the, in the halls of Congress, this one focuses on. And actually, there were duels fought and fights fought on <laughs> the floors of Congress. Things that you would never see today because our civilization has, has changed, but this was a very different time. And you see that same bully, you could say, Theodore Roosevelt's word, uh, attitude in the writing of the Latter-day Saints of the period. They were they were artifacts of their time and they and they wrote that way. I would say they were bold they were in this bold. case.
0: They were very bold and confident with what they were sharing. But this particular article in August of 1882 focuses on a very specific story, a mm-hmm. very specific theory, we should say, that was forwarded in its time called the uh, Spalding story, I guess, or the Spalding
1: manuscript. Yeah, it was manuscript lost, manuscript found. Yeah. Um, so what what is the Spalding manuscript? Solomon Spalding um, was a writer who passed away in 1816, so a few years before Joseph really came onto the public scene, who had written a manuscript that was never published, um, and that was to some degree lost. And when the Book of Mormon was published in 1829 and 1830, uh, shortly thereafter, members of Solomon Spalding's family, I believe, including his widow and family members, said that this directly copies from the Book of Mormon. He stole this from from Solomon. And then certain early critics of the church latched onto this. Uh, What what is fascinating about it is that no one had seen uh, the manuscript. Yeah, how would Joseph have gotten his hands on it? Um, there was various theories for it. I believe one of them was that Sidney Rigdon had perhaps stolen it. Sidney, of course, being a number of years older than Joseph. And there was a uh, conspiracy theory about Sidney um, having known Joseph before they publicly met and sneaking the manuscript to him. It's it's very convoluted. Elder Holland actually mentioned this in a conference talk in, I want to say, October 2009, um, saying, he said, none of these frankly pathetic stories. <laughs> um have ever been into account for the origin of the Book of Mormon. And people cited the salt the spalding theory as the origin of the Book of Mormon for many years, uh, decades, even making their way into to official publication, encyclopedias, dictionaries, etc. But then in the 1880s, the actual manuscript was found uh, by non-Latter-day Saints who were in the search, I believe, of anti-slavery documents, I think which I think we might mention in a future episode. And it was looked at and discovered this has no bearing on the Book of Mormon. And uh, the one Person who had found it saying an alternate explanation of Book of Mormon's origin will need to be found. This is not it. And so George Reynolds saw that it was important to address this, and this the juvenile instructor was a youth magazine. Yeah, the youth man needed to see it. And then only a year or two after this, he'd be pu- he would publish in part of the faith promoting series, which the life of Nephi, the son of Lehi, was also part of. Yeah, we covered on this podcast. He would publish a full hundred uh, page book on the spotting theory, breaking it down and and showing where the Book of Mormon uh, stands apart and all the things that need to be accounted for uh, in the origin story for the Book of Mormon. And so this is a fascinating little article where he addresses this.
0: Yeah, so this is definitely something that was at least, let's just say, on the minds of some of the, the brethren at the time,
1: mm-hmm. and it
0: was not a, a new thing. It does seem like, it feels a little like one of those conspiracy theories where it there's does. so much supposition that you don't even know what you're holding on to and with so many questions, it starts to
1: feel like there's no truth to it. And I and I feel like the the, the thing with conspiracy theories is we all like stories. Yeah. And they spin very interesting stories.
0: But well, we like mysteries and we like yeah. to fill in gaps. And yeah. And I know that if you like I said, if you ask enough questions, people think that there's no answer and, and they begin to think that the Book of Mormon itself quite possibly the only possible solution is that you got to doubt the origin story because mm-hmm. there's too many questions that go unanswered. But these questions have very little merit. I mean, there's it's one of those theories that's kind of sad to see that it's even
1: sticking around today. Yeah, and you'll find out that the Religious Studies Center at Brigham Young University actually published uh, the manuscript found, uh, spotting this manuscript, I believe, in the 1990s. And it is on the Book of One Central Archive and will be linked in the description. So people can go and read it people for themselves and, it. and go, wow, this was... Lacking in substance, yeah, it's uh, not a page turner. Um, <laughs> but it's the the theory still has legs today, and we see it uh, pop up. I've seen it pop up as recently as this week in comments saying, "When will you acknowledge that Spalding, this that Solomon Spalding manuscript was the origin of the Book of Mormon?" And like, well, usually uh, I want to say, "Just grab them by the lapels, going, have you read the actual manuscript? Because you'll see, it's nothing like it.'" Well, you mentioned that George Reynolds wrote a book about this. Is that on the man, on the archive that, that book is also. What's it uh, called? Um, that book is called. I think it actually shares a title with the name of this article. <laughs> I think this article actually was a test run for the book. The Myth of the Manuscript Found, or the Absurdities of the Spalding Story, mm-hmm. is published that right? in 1883. Wow, that's a heavy title. It is. It is <laughs> actually fairly light by 19th-century standards. <laughs> one of Parley P. Pratt's titles for one of his publications. I swear, went more than 40 words. Oh my gosh! I tried. I was making. I was working at a publisher at the time, and I was trying to fit it on the cover. And I think I just gave up. <laughs> I just chopped the first few words off and made that the title instead.
0: Nice. Mm-hmm. And that's not a very big book, but we can also link to that, or you mm-hmm. guys can search. The Book of Mormon Central Archive to find some of these things we've talked about here on this episode, but we're going to jump right now into a reading of Internal Evidences of the Book of Mormon, Showing the Absurdity of the Spaulding Story by George Reynolds. Internal Evidences of the Book of Mormon, Showing the Absurdity of the Spaulding Story by George Reynolds, appearing in The Juvenile Instructor, August 1882. It is our purpose in this article to demonstrate from the Book of Mormon itself the absurdity of the Spaulding story and the utter impossibility of the Prophet Joseph Smith ever having used Mr. Spaulding's reputed romance, the manuscript found, as the groundwork for that divine record. At different times since the publication of the Book of Mormon, various writers have undertaken to explain the plot and contents of the manuscript found and to show how remarkable is the resemblance between it and the Book of Mormon. We are told by one reverend author that when the Book of Mormon was read to Solomon Spaulding's widow, brother, and six other persons well acquainted with Mr. Spaulding's writings, they immediately recognized in the Book of Mormon the same historical matter and names as composed the romance, although this reading took place some years after they had read the latter work. The writer further states that they affirmed that with the exception of the religious matter, it is copied almost word for word from Spaulding's manuscript. Another writer affirms that the romance of Spaulding's was similar in all its leading features to the historical portions of the Book of Mormon, while a third writer maintains that the historical part of the Book of Mormon was immediately recognized by all the other inhabitants of New Salem, Ohio, as the identical work of Mr. Spaulding in which they had been so interested twenty years before. Those who claim to have been acquainted with the writings of Mr. Spaulding differ materially as to the incidents and plot of the manuscript found. According to their widely different statements, his romance was based upon one of two theories. The first on the idea of the landing of a Roman colony on the Atlantic seaboard shortly before the Christian era. The second, now the most generally known and accepted, on the supposition that the present American Indians are the descendants of the Ten Tribes of Israel, who were led away captive out of their own land into Media, where historically the world loses sight of them, but where Mr. Spalding's romance finds them and transports them to America. It is upon this idea of the transportation of this great and numerous people from the land of their captivity to the Western world that this gentleman's novel is generally said to have been founded. We will examine this statement first and strive to discover how nearly this agrees with the historical narrative of the Book of Mormon which we are told was immediately recognized as being identical and copied almost word for word from the pages of the manuscript found. In the first place, it is well to remark that the Book of Mormon makes but very few references to the Ten Tribes, and in those few, it directly, plainly, and unequivocally states that the American Indians are not the descendants of the Ten Tribes, and further, that the Ten Tribes never were in America or any part of it, during any portion of their existence as a nation. On the other hand, the Book of Mormon as directly informs us whom the aborigines or natives of this continent are descended. This being the case, how is it possible for the two works to be identical? But admitting for the sake of argument that Joseph Smith might have changed the statement of the author of the manuscript found in this one particular, we will proceed to show that such a supposition is utterly impossible. For to have retained the unities of the work and the consistencies of the story, for the story of the Book of Mormon is consistent with itself, he must have altered not only the leading features, but also the minor details of the whole historical narrative. He must have altered the place of departure, the circumstances of the journey, the route taken by the immigrants, the time of the emigration, and every other particular connected with such a great movement. We must recollect that the Book of Mormon gives the account of a small colony, perhaps about thirty or forty souls, being led by the Lord from the city of Jerusalem, through the wilderness south and east of that city, to the borders of the Red Sea, thence for some distance in the same direction near its coast, and then across the Arabian Peninsula to the sea eastward. What insanity could have induced Mr. Spalding to propose Such a route for the Ten Tribes, for of all of -of out-of-the-way methods of researching the American continent from media, this would be the most inaccessible, difficult, roundabout, and improbable, and would carry them along the two sides of an acute angle by the time they reached the shore where the ship was built. It would almost certainly have taken these tribes close to, if not through a portion of their own ancient homes where it is reasonable to suppose nearly all would have desired to tarry when we consider how great was the love that ancient Israel held for the rich land given to them by divine power. Mr. Spalding, as a student of the Bible, would have made no such blunder. But even supposing that he was foolish enough in his romance to transport the hosts of Israel from the southwestern borders of the Caspian Sea, where history loses them, by the nearest route, most probably over the Armenian mountains, across the Syrian desert, and by way of Damascus through the lands of Gilead, Moab, and Edom into the wilderness of the Red Sea, where we ask, Is there an account of such a journey in any portion of the Book of Mormon? There is none. For the Book of Mormon opens with the description of Lehi's departure from Jerusalem with the illegible word that led thereto, he having been a resident of that city all his days and never a captive in media. Therefore, we are justified in asking at the very outset of this inquiry, where, from the opening pages onward, is there any identity between the two books? Then again, it is not obvious to every thinking person that the moving of a nation, such as the ten tribes were, must have had associated with it events and circumstances entirely inconsistent and at variance with the simple story of the journey of Lehi and his family, as given frequently with minute detail in the Book of Mormon. How numerous were the hosts of the captive Israelites we have no means of definitely ascertaining. We learn, however, that in one invasion alone, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, carried off 200,000 captives from the kingdom of Israel. Even admitting that in their captivity these 200,000 did not increase in numbers and entirely ignoring all the other thousands that were led away captives in other invasions, we should necessarily expect that Spaulding, in his account of the moving of this mass of humanity, men, women, and children, with their flocks, herds, and supplies, would write a narrative consistent with the subject, and not one such as the Book of Mormon contains. But whether he did or did not, the Book of Mormon contains nothing whatever of the kind. In that work, no vast armies are led out of media by any route whatever to the American continent. We have an entirely different story. More dissimilar indeed from Spalding's supposed narrative than the history of the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt under Moses is from the story of the departure from the Old World, the voyage across the Atlantic and landing on this continent of the Pilgrim Fathers of revered memory. In the narrative that the Book of Mormon gives of the journeyings of Lehi and his little colony, all of the incidents related are consistent with the idea of a small people and entirely inconsistent with that of a vast moving multitude. For instance, let us take an example, the story of Nephi breaking his bow, by which the little caravan was placed in danger of starvation. If there had been a vast host, numbering nearly a quarter of a million souls, such an incident could have no weight, for surely Mr. Spalding never wrote that one hunter alone supplied such a multitude with all the necessary food. And it would be equally absurd to imagine that the gentleman would tell such an improbable story as that all the hunters broke all their bows at the same time. Again, the Book of Mormon tells us that Lehi and his companions depended on the chase for their entire food. Where, we would ask, in the midst of the Arabian desert, could game enough be found to supply the entire wants of the migrating ten tribes? And further, what would they do for water, for such a company? in the trackless Arabian desert without divine interposition and manifestation of miraculous power, but the Book of Mormon hints at no such a contingency. Again, the story of the building of the ship by Nephi must have been entirely altered, for no one ship, be it twenty times as large as the Great Eastern, could have carried Mr. Spalding's imaginary company and their effects across the wide waters of the Indian and Pacific oceans. We must now draw attention to the time when the Book of Mormon states Lehi and his company were led out of Jerusalem. There is no ambiguity on this point. It is repeatedly stated that this event took place 600 years before the advent of our Savior. That is, it was previous to the Babylonish captivity. The ten tribes were not lost sight of at that time. They were undoubtedly still in the land of their captivity. And if Mr. Spalding was foolish enough in his romance to set a date to his exodus, he certainly, would not have placed it during the lifetime of Jeremiah the prophet and of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, for not only would such a date have marred the consistency of the story, but it is also utterly impossible for us to conceive as a historical probability that the mighty king of Babylon would have permitted the ten tribes to escape from their captivity at that time, and above all things, to have taken such a route as would have brought them to the borders of the Red Sea. If they escaped at all, it necessarily would have been to the inhabited regions northward. From a political standpoint, it would have been suicidal and utterly inconsistent with the polity of the king of Babylon to allow the captive Israelites to march forth in the supposed direction. For it would have placed them in immediate contact with the kingdom of Judah and enabled them to have formed an alliance with their former brethren, antagonistic to his interests and policy. To pursue the subject still further, when the colony reached the land of promise, which we will call America, the incidents related in the Book of Mormon are entirely consistent with the story of the voyage and of the peopling of the land by a small colony, and not by a vast host. If Joseph Smith, as some claim, had changed Mr. Spaulding's romance, he must have still continued to alter the narrative throughout the entire volume, for the story still maintains its consistency, and through it from beginning to end there runs a thread possible only on the theory That it was a single family with their immediate connections through marriage that first founded the nations of the Nephites and Lamanites. The entire history hinges on the quarrels of the sons of Lehi and the results growing therefrom. For from the division of this family into two separate and distinct peoples grew all the wars, contentions, bloodsheds, troubles, and disasters that fill the pages of this sacred record. While on the other hand, the blessings flowing to both nations almost always resulted from the reconciliation of the two opposing peoples and the inauguration of a united and amicable policy beneficial alike to both. Had the American continent been peopled at the commencement by a vast host, the whole current of the story must have been vastly different, not only in the events that took place, but also in the motives that controlled the hearts of the actors who took part in those events, and in the traditions of the masses. The traditions did, in the case of the Nephites and Lamanites, have an overwhelming influence in the shaping of public affairs, which shape they never could have received by any set of traditions incidental to Mr. Spaulding's story. What, too, shall we say of the Jaredites? From whence did Joseph Smith beg, borrow, or steal their history? Did Mr. Spaulding bring his ten tribes from the Tower of Babel and give them an existence ages anterior to the lifetime of their great progenitor Jacob? If not, will somebody inform us how this portion of the Book of Mormon was manufactured? From the above, it is evident that if Mr. Spaulding's story was what its friends claim, then it never could have formed the groundwork of the Book of Mormon, for the whole historical narrative is different from beginning to end, and further the story that certain old inhabitants of New Salem, who, it is said, recognized the Book of Mormon, either never made such a statement, or they let their imagination run away with their memory into the endorsement of an impossible falsehood. Either way, there is a lie. If they asserted that the Book of Mormon is identical with the Spaulding story, then they are guilty of having violated the truth. If they did not make this statement, then the falsehood is with those who, in their hatred to modern revelations, have invented their testimony. The same statement applies to those who assert that the Book of Mormon was copied almost word for word from the manuscript found. A book that is entirely dissimilar in its narrative cannot be exact in its wording. As well might we say and be just as consistent and every way as truthful that the history of England was copied from the adventures of Robinson Crusoe. The first is a truth, the other a fable. So it is with the Book of Mormon and the Spalding Romance. If then the resemblance is so small between the Book of Mormon and the manuscript found, when we consider the ten-tribe version of the latter work, where is it possible there can be a shadow of similarity when we examine the Roman colony theory? For instance, Lehi left Jerusalem. Spaulding's heroes sailed from Rome. Lehi started on his journey not knowing whither the Lord would lead him. The Romans were bound for Britain. Lehi and his companions wandered for several years on land. The Roman party made the entire journey by water. Lehi traveled by way of the Arabian Peninsula and the Indian and Pacific Oceans. Spaulding's imaginary characters sailed by way of the Mediterranean Sea and the Atlantic Ocean. The travels of one party were considerably south of east, the voyage of the others west or northwest. One party landed on the South Pacific shore, the other on the North Atlantic. Mormon's record was written in Reformed Egyptian, the imaginary manuscript found in Latin. Mormon's record was engraved on plates of metal, Spalding's pretended manuscript on parchment. The original of the Book of Mormon was hid in the Hill Cimora, state of New York. Mr. Spaulding's manuscript is claimed to have been discovered in a cave near Canuit, state of Ohio. The Book of Mormon gives an account of a religious people, God's dealings with whom the central and dominant idea. Spaulding's romance tells the story of an idolatrous people. Such is the positive sentiment of his widow and daughter. There is another point worthy of our thought. If Joseph Smith did make the use of the manuscript found, it must have been for one of two reasons either because he was not able to write such a work himself, or that he might save himself trouble and labor. In the first place, he could not have done this for the lack of ability, for anyone who could have adroitly altered a history of the ten tribes so that it now reads as a distinct, detailed, and consistent history of a small company of the tribe of Joseph, most assuredly could have written such a history for himself, if he had felt so disposed. Then again, he could not have done it to save himself work for to so change a long history from one end to the other, until it contradicted all it had previously asserted and became the harmonious history of another people, would save no man trouble. Then again, in considering these points, we must remember what an idle vagabond Joseph was, according to some people's stories. What could have possibly possessed him to do such an enormous amount of copying, when, as literate as he was, such an operation would have been immensely hard work? though it must be remembered all this time he was loafing around the street corners, telling fortunes and doing everything but honest toil. That is, if some folks' tales are to be believed. And again, supposing for a moment Joseph was an impostor to show the weakness of our opponent's arguments, then he ran the risk of detection by copying another man's work. He ran that risk without a single motive, except it was the privilege of toiling for nothing or the pleasure of being exposed when, by writing it himself, he need have no risk at all. Thank you for listening to the Internal Evidences of the Book of Mormon, showing the absurdity of the Spaulding story, by George Reynolds, as appearing in The Juvenile Instructor, August 1882. Stay tuned to the Rare Possessions podcast from Book of Mormon Central each week for another episode highlighting something from the Book of Mormon Central archives. Visit us at archive.bookofmormoncentral.org.